Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the only place to hear cutting-edge climate tech founders pitch their businesses in real time and on a podcast. I'm Nick Van Osdal. Let's jump in. In order to decarbonize the world, the entire grid, as well as the whole transportation industry, will need to be electrified. This will require generating a ton of electricity from renewables like solar and wind. It will also require massive amounts of batteries and energy storage to make sure the needs of the grid can be met at any given time. Further still, it will require infrastructure for things like fast and efficient EV charging, and that this infrastructure be accessible to all. Luckily, there's technologies that can be applied to help tackle all of these trends and challenges. Today's interview features Electric Fish, a company whose unique hardware offers an energy storage solution that can be deployed quickly across a number of different sites and doubles as a fast EV charger. I'm here with co-founders Vince Wong and Fola Ayula, as well as with Kyle Cherick, a climate tech investor who's also a decade-long solar industry veteran. In today's episode, we'll hear about Electric Fish's technology and learn about their pilot project, where they've helped charge EVs in under five minutes and provided energy back to other applications. The beauty of their tech is also that they can deploy it quickly by hooking up with existing infrastructure. We'll also hear from Vincent Fola about why they see solutions like theirs as such a critical component of our electrified future. One refreshing angle includes learning about how more distributed energy systems can promote greater societal equity, not just electrification. Finally, we'll dig in deep on some of the key challenges that are unique to hardware businesses, including how the team is thinking through manufacturing and selling at scale. We'll also get their take on how to best position their company to take advantage of the regulatory environment right now, with a lot of focus being paid on how to make our nation's infrastructure more resilient. Ready to go? Let's jump in. All right, Vince and Fola, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Excited to have you on representing Electric Fish today. Would love to start with a 60 or 120 second elevator pitch on the business. The floor is yours. So at Electric Fish, we are setting out to build the utility of the future to enable resilient electrification everywhere. As we think about the sort of dual movements around electric mobility, but also grid resilience, we've traditionally seen these tackled through siloed approaches. We've seen sort of number of infrastructure challenges that threaten to bottleneck our progress on both fronts. We're dealing with highly aging grid architecture, which was built about a century ago at this point, and that has the potential to significantly uh, throttle our progress in getting critical infrastructure deployed. Getting critical infrastructure deployed uh, around EV charging infrastructure is not easy. You typically need to overhaul a site's uh, infrastructure to make it compatible. And the higher the power requirements, the higher the infrastructure requirements. And the path to ROI itself is not necessarily intuitive either, given that utilization is highly variable and peak demand charges are very impactful. So at Electric Fish, we are developing and deploying resilient EV infrastructure, starting with an intelligence-based approach, which de-risks the actual siting of the infrastructure, and then deploying flexible plug-and-play infrastructure that is readily compatible with even the most grid-constrained sites for both consumers and fleets, and then making that intelligent so that it can actually support local grid resilience through integration with distributed energy resources, or DERs. And so in that sense, we are able to power the clean energy future uh, that we want really easily. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, as you alluded to things like 
grid resilience and EV charging are massive challenges, both from kind of a strategic intelligence and also hardware deployment perspective. How what are like the first steps that you've taken to actually get hardware into the wild, so to speak? And and how's that going so far? We were founded back in December 2019, uh, months before the pandemic took over the world, months before the supply chain crises (laughs) took over the world. And so there were a lot of really interesting learnings for us as we were getting our first product out into into the wild. You know, we were dealing with a very complex patchwork of uh, international suppliers. We've learned our lesson and have since uh, onshored pretty much about everything uh, to keep the supply chain really lean and, and nimble. And thinking a lot about what really would solve the key market gaps with differentiated technology. So we've developed some core IP, which we've built upon. We have a system level design, which covers this concept of connecting through low voltage connectivity in these highly grid constrained sites, but not without compromising on the core user experience of delivering 350 kilowatt uh, fast charging, while also being able to serve local resiliency use cases to maximize utilization of these systems. And so we've taken that approach, uh, which has seen a lot of reception from a variety of stakeholders. We started our journey very much laser focused on just gas stations and Mm. gas stations remain a a core segment for us, but we've also seen a lot of interest um, in other segments that we didn't necessarily think about initially. Municipalities who are electrifying their fleets, utilities who are dealing with both vehicle electrification more broadly, but also uh, grid modernization. And then of course, fleet operators themselves and the list goes on. Uh, So basically we've seen that our product as we've designed it, the core IP translates very nicely across geographies, but also use cases. I'd like to add the equity aspect of things. I think something people forget is the status quo infrastructure right now quite fit with the lifestyle of the average person. Um, I don't own a house. Uh, I don't know if you, maybe you do. I don't have access (laughs) home charging. There's the constraints, especially uh, when it comes to time wealth. Um, I don't, if I'm going to buy an EV, I don't have access to home or workplace charging. It's going to be a problem if I have barely enough time during the day and have to plan around when I can access charging. Um, Out to the future, we do need uh, a lot of fast chargers, a number of fast chargers out and about out there, easily accessible in the public to unlock that massive adoption that we need to get to, that President Biden is trying to get to by 2035. And so, which is where we fit in, we're going into places where we're able to break that chicken and egg problem, where uh, traditional EV charging companies are unable to unlock profitable returns simply because there isn't enough adoption. We go in there, we're able to serve grid backup power and provide resilience as a service and really provide that confidence in the consumer uh, that there there's that public, easily accessible charging available. So there's uh, EV adoption. There, there's no range anxiety. They're confident enough to buy an electric vehicle. And then that unlocks the market and creates this virtual cycle. That's a good point that beyond building grid resilience, decentralizing some of these systems also has an equity component to it. I like that. I hadn't previously thought about that. One question hearing both of you talk that was raised for me, and this kind of jumps ahead to a little bit more of the business side, but there clearly is a big opportunity in a number of different pathways, whether it be 
EV charging or kind of providing that bi-directional energy back to the grid or even things like regulatory incentives for improving grid resilience. Is there one in particular that you think will dominate in the early stages? I think there is a huge uh, need right now, not just in California um, in times of wildfires, but across the country and really globally for distributed energy resources, specifically storage, as we continue to have these climate impacts that put traditional grid infrastructure at risk. And so uh, resource adequacy really is a huge pain point for utilities. And it is something that we find that is one of those things that's pretty much global um, across the country. And that's our unique proposition. We definitely don't see a one size fits all. There's, as I said, a lot of interest more broadly around leveraging an integrated approach of how we define what infrastructure will be most impactful for multiple propositions. So, you know, we definitely need more charging infrastructure, but we also need to think critically about how that then impacts, you know, the grid, how it impacts community resilience, especially in the face of these uh, increasing climate disasters. Kyle, I want to open it up to you. What what questions do you have so far? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks, Nick. First, Vincent Fuller, thanks for sharing about the company. And it's really interesting to hear uh, how you all approaching it. I'd love to dig in if you are open to it a little bit on this, um, this pilot that you're working on. You know, I've heard you talk about a couple different potential value propositions for your product. And I'm curious how many of them you were able to actually test and potentially pilot. Like, you know, was this primarily just, hey, let's see, you know, how fast can we charge cars uh, without affecting the building's load, you know, just using the, the unit? Or were you able to do backup power supply? Were you able to do grid services or anything else like that? Great question, Kyle. So before we get to any of that, there's really the initial hurdles of the infrastructure itself. How do you actually get it to market quickly, safely, effectively? And so with this particular pilot, we had the you know, privilege of working with LADWP at one of their own buildings in a very dense area of downtown LA. We were working with a site that already had microgrids. It already had EV charging, but they still saw a significant gap in terms of how they could better manage energy resources effectively right on site. And then, of, of course, that translates more broadly to impacts on their grid, especially as the grid operator. So we were able to come into this site, repurpose a very limited grid connection, it was a 20 amp connection that was originally sort of cited for e-scooter and e-bike charging. So you can, it gives you a sense of how limited this connection is. There weren't really many other uses for it. And basically with about two weeks of planning with one of our electrical contractor partners and this, this site host, we were able to uh, get the actual installation done in just two working days. Typically, it might take multiple years um, and hundreds of thousands of dollars on the low end to complete because of, as I mentioned before, the compatibility requirements. And so by being able to complete installation in just two working days with just around four to 5K in budget, we were already able to benchmark our significant, our extreme uh, capability of being a plug and play solution in even the most grid constrained locations. We don't expect that to be a very typical scenario, but 
it really does show on the extreme end how quickly we can get into market in, in very grid limited scenarios. And since then, we've had a number of OEMs on the light duty side uh, actually participate in some trials and demonstrations with us. On the high end, we were able to demonstrate around 260 kilowatts of charging. And again, with this very minimal, basically five kilowatt charging input. And so really, there's a lot of magic sort of happening inside of our box that is able to enable this power conversion, but without straining the building or the grid. And we are working over the next couple of weeks as we wrap up the pilot to you know step up to, to 350 kW. We were able to actually provide some bidirectional power to uh, some Christmas lights. We, we got the installation done right around Christmas and were able to at least demonstrate some bidirectional power. For this pilot, that was less part of the scope versus the ability to interconnect quickly and deliver high-speed charging. So those would be other aspects we would look to dive deeper into in some of our other upcoming pilot opportunities. I'm really curious how you're thinking about your go-to-market because, as you guys have discussed, this is a really large you know, potential market. But I think, you know, it can be hard sometimes for startups who everything, you know, looks attractive, right? And and that's kind of how it is, I feel like, because roads are basically everywhere. The grid is basically everywhere. There's theoretical demand everywhere. But where is the, how do you quickly identify scalable channels for the lowest hanging fruit where the market is just demanding your product? Like we have a clear problem. We need dozens of your units as soon as the first pilot is proven, we want to install 10 more. So what do you see as the roadmap to full commercialization uh, and scaling up the business? The two common traits that help us qualify a good customer fit is someone with significant grid constraints where we can really make a big impact in their ability to deploy this infrastructure. And then where resilience is valued. And so if you think about a gas station, the most profitable aspect of a gas station is the convenience store um, or some of those other services they provide. And so being able to provide uptime for those types of services is extremely critical for their economics. You know, some of the fleets that we've we've engaged, um, they also have this need to move really quickly as they've got very ambitious targets, but also thinking about uh, maximizing uptime of their, their, whether it's their fleet operations or potentially the, the depot that they operate at. These are, you know, really the top two traits. We have sort of modeled out what this looks like as we reach scale. Um, it's roughly around 80% of this sort of leasing model where we provide a frictionless turnkey service to, to these franchisee types of businesses, gas stations, and convenience stores, and help them monetize unused real estate assets um, right on site. The other 20% is more of this upfront purchase plus license model um, that might be more traditionally akin to like the enterprise customer. So think the municipalities and, and the utility buyers. You know, we definitely think that the leasing model gives us the ability to scale very quickly, given that there's typically less lesser of a sales cycle, especially as you're dealing with franchisees themselves. Um, it's typically a one man or one woman show where they kind of manage the operations of the site, but also the land and the purchasing decisions. And we see, you know, increasingly a lot of awareness and um, acceptance of 
financial backed solutions, whether it's in the form of equipment leasing or project finance, you know, these are becoming, I think solar definitely paved the way and making that accessible for an infrastructure. We are now starting to see that in terms of microgrids and charging infrastructure, both in which both sectors, which we play in. So we see that as a, as a pivotal path for us to attack those markets effectively. A big part of this isn't just like figuring out the technology. I think probably the biggest impact to our success would be how we structure our business, how we figure out financing specifically, how we make it as accessible and non-complicated to the customer as possible, how we manage uptime. Really, that customer experience is what can probably make or break the business model. We really structure the model and structure our uh, different, I guess, value props for different customer segments in a way that targets their pain points for the be it the gas station owner who's worried about food traffic um, and really trying to convert their pumps to charging so they continually can provide service or be it uh, fleet owners who not just are not just concerned about uptime but tend to have really specific schedules if you know you're an electrified school bus run runner owner operator the kids have to get to school <laughs> whether or not electricity is expensive. So really helping them shave those uh, operational costs is important. And so how we tailor to each of our customer segments and really make sure that we're addressing those pain points with 100% uptime and making sure that financing isn't a barrier is a big part of our offering. And how far along are you in terms of your conversations with some of these potential types of clients, be it franchise gas station owners or something as large as a municipality. And then I guess as part of that question, like what are the blockers between kind of completing the initial pilot this month and then actually going and delivering service to those potential customers? We started our journey really laser focused on gas station franchisees. We saw a lot of interest from them because, you know, they're very savvy and see that their industry is getting turned upside down. And it's just a matter of time before they're forced to transition into clean energy. We saw a lot of initial traction uh, with the franchisees themselves through a zero-cost marketing campaign we ran in 24 hours. We got signups from all over the country, nice. you know, basically begging for us to come to their <laughs> to their city or to their to their station. We decided to prioritize uh, two, uh, very strategically, one in the Bay Area and one in the LA metro um, to start with. Um, we, you know, saw that these could really translate to to big gains if we made it an effective deployment. Um, so, from there, we've seen a lot of interest from the oil majors themselves. Some of which were engaged with in early conversations, early to to medium conversations around if we get one pilot off the ground, does that then translate to twenty or maybe fifty sites? So, you know, those are the one to many opportunities we've been seeking as of late. But yeah, with some of the other enterprise customers as well, I would say in the six, the past six to eight months, we've seen a lot of that interest from other types of segments beyond oil and gas and convenience stores. And that side of things has been really picking up. Coming next, we're going to be uh, looking to hit some key product development milestones later this year, where we'll actually be kicking off the UL certification process, which will basically certify the safety of our system very officially at 
in a variety of environments and climates. And we'll also be ramping up for that manufacturing sort of scale. So we've already identified a lot of partners on each of these fronts, whether it's permitting, fire safety, and manufacturing uh, to ensure that that broader expertise and infrastructure is there once we're able to execute on it. You hit on some important next steps that I think are, are going to be huge for hitting the, the kind of inflection points. Talked about UL certification and then, you know, potentially manufacturing. So two questions. One, how long do you all expect it'll take you to get through the UL certification process? And then second, are you planning to do your own manufacturing or are you looking at using, uh, utilizing a, a contract manufacturer how much capital do you expect to need to have raised in order to be able to, to fund that those efforts? With respect to UL, um, we would anticipate it taking or kind of spanning two quarters. We've done a lot of de-risking uh, at the front end. We've already engaged a number of certification preparation and other sort of consulting partners to help us understand the requirements. And so we've been designing our system as if we've we're sort of going through that process already, even if we haven't officially gone through it. So our plan has been to sort of de-risk a lot of that process uh, ahead of time. And so we won't actually know till we go through it, but that's our best guess um, as of now. And then we've been definitely weighing a lot of those um, manufacturing decisions. We see, you know, really strong competencies with some of the contract manufacturing firms we've, we've engaged. We're part of a really fantastic program called Scale for Climate Tech run out of NYSERDA. And they've given us a lot of the know-how processes, frameworks, and actually connections to some of these firms that'll help us scale for success and build for product excellence. We believe with the seed round, which we're currently raising, we're raising a $7 million seed round. This will really give us the ammunition to appropriately and effectively tackle not only the market opportunities and demand, but actually do so with a carefully curated and uh, developed product that um, always works, um, engenders consumer and market trust, and ultimately is able to move this industry forward. I'm also curious, um, as you think about these next stages of the milestones you're looking to hit, what are the areas of your team that you feel like you, you need to hire somebody to really own that space and help you reach the next milestones for growth? Within the the core team, the core founding team, we've already assembled a lot of deep expertise across the battery value chain, across grid science, across hardware. But there's definitely a lot more depth that we can bring into the team. So, you know, we're actively bringing on experts who have really been pioneers in sort of the electrical engineering space, who have built this type of infrastructure at scale. You know, we're also very aggressively bringing on data science resources as well, because our value is in the optimization. Optimization in terms of siting, optimization in terms of how we manage the energy resources at a site and network level. And so those are going to be some key um, resources being brought on. And then also, as far as the actual execution of manufacturing, you know, we're going to be bringing on resources that help us mitigate supply chain risks and manage you know the the patchwork of suppliers that we have and then from a business standpoint you know we've gotten pretty far with 
really dedicated advisors who are very specialized in this space um, and in commercializing in this space. But we definitely would love to bring on folks with expertise, um, with Rolodexes, who've successfully you know, navigated the sales cycle of these more enterprise players like utilities and, and municipalities to really, really help us scale up commercialization efforts. And then, yeah, there's you know, third parties that we've already engaged that are supporting us around the financing, how we think about productizing and bundling our solution into something that's very accessible to the market, but also to financiers. I would also be curious to hear how that impacts kind of the way that you're thinking about raising the seed round and the profile of investor that you're looking for. I mean, that's a, an excellent question. And we're really targeting, I mean, of course, uh, we would take all the help we can get. I think the space is quite niche where folks who get into it, be it in terms of entrepreneurship or VC, are passionate about it and tend to do a lot. We're definitely always seeking investors that can help us navigate the critical points to figuring out product market fit, um, scale manufacturing, um, figuring out financing, and really have the not just the experience, but uh, potentially, I mean, preferably, um, the, the connections and resources um, that they, they could help us with in those areas. I say this quite a bit. If you're trying to find an energy data scientist, I don't know that there's a lot of them in the market. Um, you might find someone who's great at energy or someone who's great at, you know, the data science, uh, <laughs> not always both. Um, and so as long as the passion's there, the the thing is, there's a bunch of learning to be done and we can all learn together. Um, so we've had a whole slew of interns over the course, you know, of the time we've been working. And it's something we're always excited about their energy. And so in addition to experienced hires, we're also, you know, just looking for great people who are excited about the problem. Nice. You all are going to create the energy data science like incubator <laughs> of the future. That's where they're all going to come from. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Someone has to do it. Yeah, I think the one thing we haven't kind of talked about yet is, um, you know, there's a lot of work being done to solve kind of all of these big problems that we're talking about, right? We're talking about increased demand from the grid to charge EVs at increasingly higher, faster rates. Um, we're talking about power outages. We're talking about demand charge reduction. So there's a lot of different solutions for this. I think there's going to be a lot of companies attack this as just it's needed. I think it's great that you all are working on it and, and taking your crack at it, right? So I guess the question really becomes, what is that core thing that you think is going to differentiate your solution that'll help you build out your channel, right? Like there's, in my mind, there's going to be lots of winners in this space because there's going to be lots of solutions deployed at scale. But where do you find kind of your niche where it goes? If a customer is like this, we own them. We're the best place to call. We provide the most value or it's not always the best solution that works. It's the, the solution that gets deployment the fastest, right? Like you talked about this leasing model, which I really, I really like kind of a no, no upfront cost. We install it and we either share revenue or we, we save you on your demand charges or whatever it might be. How do you just quickly scale that up so that you get deployment before others can, can even compete? So I think it's two primary factors and one of them certainly is scalability and speed to market. The fact that we've really designed a solution that is plug and play. Uh, I think that's going to be really critical as we think about 
building market equity and mindshare, being able to scale a network really quickly, just as important is going to be the actual value being generated. The fact that we have a, a value stack effectively within each unit. And that that optimization of serving EV charging versus grid resiliency versus maybe site resiliency or site host resiliency is going to add a whole lot of value that wasn't there before in a really quick way and you know help de-risk the economics for adopters who traditionally might not have had that clear pathway to what that profitability is. I, like you rightly said, there's going to be a lot of winners in this space and <laughs> gosh, the space is more than big enough. Um, but I think a few things that set us support. First, of course, is core score. It's something that is very useful, not just in the EV space or resilience space, but when one thinks about uh, at-risk infrastructure generally, especially as climate impacts kind of scale, it's something that's going to be important for I don't know, folks in real estate financing, for instance, to make those sorts of decisions. Um, And uh, the interesting thing is about CoreScore is it combines the energy storage consideration with the distributed networks consideration with the EV charging consideration, as well as equity and customer usage patterns, puts it all together in the decision making. And so it's something I think is it's going to be really important as we scale Another thing that I I think is going to be really critical for us is how we approach resilience. And I say resilience not in terms of energy, but in terms of uptime and customer satisfaction. Um, How can we guarantee that really fantastic user experience? How do we become the go-to name for that public, fast, accessible EV charging? We really want to create that kind of seamless experience that folks are used to when going out to fill out their cars with gas, Uh, not just because it's always great to have great customer experience, but when one thinks about the inconveniences and the marginal impact on daily life, it's really important that those problems are solved so that the average person can go about their lives while owning an electric vehicle. You know, we're all reasonably well aligned to hear on the magnitude of the kind of some of the trends that you all are at the intersection of, whether it's EVs taking off or the need for trillions of batteries for energy storage across the world. But um, on the regulatory front, is there stuff happening tactically in the next 12 months that I wouldn't be aware of, but you're excited about potentially being a good tailwind for the business? Traditionally, charging infrastructure and sort of resilience have been approached as silos. And I think we're starting to see greater acceptance um, for the need of integrated approaches. And so things like FERC's Order 2222, which really helps to further commercialize DERs and generate compensation structures, uh, is going to be really interesting to watch. Some states like California have been further along, but other states as well are and utilities are now looking at how they can bake in those compensation structures. And then similarly, seeing the adoption of mandates like around resource adequacy, I think that the public safety power shutoffs and other resiliency challenges have really sparked urgency to further embed resilience as a, as a core principle. And so we're going to see more of that, which excites us. And then finally, I guess 
you know, there's a lot entailed in the current sort of bipartisan infrastructure law, but then also the potential build America better or whatever they're calling it these days, <laughs> um, you know, omnibus plan that that the, really unlocks funding for infrastructure in disadvantaged communities to more equitably distribute uh, this infrastructure, as well as, you know, thinking again about resilience as a uh, first principle. My folks still live in the Bay Area, and I feel like every summer, the last few years at least, there have been rolling brownouts. So one would hope that they're thinking hard about how to <laughs> avoid that going forward. I mean, it's we, we saw this in Texas with the blizzards last year, the storm-battered states along the East Coast. And so, yeah, you, resilience is really becoming a universal concern. And uh, I'm just heartened to see that legislation is now kind of racing to, to meet the need. The last thing I'd say is, you know, 30 seconds on where you'd be excited to see electric fish five, five years from now. We can close, for, close with that. Five years from now, you know, we are a, a multinational team, four co-founders hailing from the U.S., myself, but also Nigeria, India, and Brazil. And so we have, we definitely have global ambitions to really scale this technology and make it accessible. And we recognize that infrastructure is going to continue to be a challenge, even more so in, in some of these emerging markets. Our three sort of impact vectors are decarbonization, resilience, and equity. And we think that, you know, this combination of being able to quickly deploy infrastructure that gets, you know, gasoline vehicles off the road, but also greens the whole sort of EV charging experience from from well to wheel, uh, being able to deliver resilient resources to communities that are typically underinvested quickly and efficiently. That's what gets me re- really excited. I, in the next five years, want to see, you know, EV charging on a commuter kind of customer level unlocked, fully accessible, but also with the replacement, I guess, of gas pumps with electric fish pumps really out there. Definitely scale globally, Africa, South America, uh, Europe, and Asia, or at least be in the process of doing that. Because again, a lot of the motivation for this was, or is rather, um, providing that equitable energy transition. So having a solution that kind of fits and works for everyone in a way that, you know, doesn't compromise grid resilience. And so that's, that's where we're trying to go. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and we're super excited about being on the journey. Nice. Yeah, that's a great way to close off. I think there's a number of different climate technology verticals where if you think about the way that some other places in the world got access to like mobile communications, they went from nothing to skipping straight to the cell phone stage, like over the pole and wire stage. And energy is probably a similar opportunity where some places that haven't had that in the past can go straight to having a more decentralized system, which would be exciting. Thanks for tuning in. And don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts.